The following Dharma talk was given for the Insight Meditation Community of Charlottesville, Virginia. Please visit our website at imeditation.org. It's always good to see people again after we've meditated. <laughs> Everyone's a little more here. So, for most kids, the best thing between the end of summertime and the beginning of winter is Halloween. And since Halloween's tomorrow, I thought I'd talk a little bit about the supernatural. So super is above, and natural means, you know, sort of what's, what's ordinary. Supernatural. And there are many supernatural happenings in the suttas. The sutta is a Pali word. Sutra is the um, Sanskrit word. And it refers to the writing, the, um, the lectures, the talks that the Buddha gave as he traveled. And there are many of them. Um, the ones we use, the earliest ones, are the, uh, uh, comprise the Pali canon. And it's very interesting to read and study them. It's best to do it in a group because they're hard to get a hold of. Uh, they're pretty dry at the beginning till you get the hang of it. Um, and sometimes it, you need a little help at the beginning. But they're really, they're certainly worth it. And we can understand how many thousands of years ago, <coughs> when mankind realized he had no control of much of anything, that um, it made sense to assume that there were greater forces controlling everything. And so different cultures handled this all a little differently. But what you did is the idea was to appease the good gods, or what you thought were the good gods, for better outcomes, and often for sheer survival. And at the same time, what came with this was awe, fascination, and ecstasy. Since this all happened at the beginning of mankind and continued, the drive for survival, along with awe, fascination, and ecstasy, became hardwired. Outwardly, we have our behaviors. Inwardly, our imagery and feelings. Both together create a coherent experience. Just as the body has an anatomical prehistory of millions of years, so does the psychic system. There is a continuous interplay, Carl Jung said, between our individual consciousness and the collective unconscious. Our brains shape and grow constantly. As many of these early inner patterns became hardwired, they continued to express themselves in our recurrent imagery, in myths, dreams, archetypes, and religious icons. We can see these inner patterns and our outer behavior interplay in our Halloween. We say it's a supernatural or liminal time 
when the veil between the worlds becomes thinned and the dead come back to visit. Fairies and spirits, goblins and gypsies dance. Bonfires are lit to keep away winter's chill and pumpkins are carved with faces to scare away the devils. And what devilish fun it is. In important connection between our outer behavior and our inner thoughts, imagery, and feelings are our stories. We love our stories. We run them constantly on many levels for good reasons, for many reasons, and we love a good story. I'd say in part because the really good ones link our outer and inner experiences. At the time of the Buddha, Two main schools of thought were that everything was predetermined, that large forces controlled everything like the rules were already in place. And the opposite school said that the universe was chaotic. It was spontaneous, random, and that purposeful action was pointless. Taking the middle path, the Buddha believed that the individual, not the universe, had the power. The individual's actions and behavior were what was important and that those actions and behaviors could become more skillful if the individual took more time, in other words, had more intention to gain skills. For example, instead of operating from one's greed, hatred, and delusion, which we all have, If one operated from one's kindness, generosity, and goodwill, there were better results. The Buddha said that viewing knowledge itself was a skill, so that our intention needed a lot of attention in order to produce good results. From this base, you can see the importance of the Eightfold Path. Our view, our intention, our speech, our action, our livelihood, our effort, our mindfulness, our concentration. And they're called right or wise because we can do them skillfully or unskillfully. An example of speech is that when we gossip, it's unskillful. So the Buddha empowered individuals by motivating them to become more skillful. Part of his success was that he used many metaphors and similes which neurobiologically ties together those inner images with the outer behavioral world. The unconscious mind is rich in metaphors and similes. A famous example is that the the simile that we should practice meditation like you'd tune a lute, or these days would say a violin or a guitar, that the string shouldn't be too tight with overdeterminism or too loose with laxity or laziness. That that they should be 
the best results happen when the instrument is in tune, when the strings are just right. And internally, music is rich for us all. Here's another. In a sutta where the Buddha is trying to teach the monks how to speak skillfully, he uses many metaphors leading to the same refrain. Suppose that a man were to come along carrying a hoe and a basket saying, I will make this great earth without earth. He would dig here and there, scatter soil here and there, spit here and there, urinate here and there. Be without earth, be without earth. Now what do you think? Would he make this great earth be without earth? No, Lord. Why is that? Because this great earth is deep and enormous. It can't easily be made to be without earth. This man would reap only a share of weariness and disappointment. Okay, so that's the setup. And then comes the teaching. Then comes the refrain. In the same way, monks, there are these five aspects of speech by which others may address you, <coughs> timely or untimely, true or false, affectionate or harsh, beneficial or unbeneficial, with a mind of goodwill or with inner hate. And this is repeated. All of these are repeated quite often because this is an oral tradition. So others may address you in a timely way or an untimely way. They may address you what's true or what is false. They may address you in an affectionate way or a harsh way. They may address you in a beneficial way or an unbeneficial way. They may address you with a mind of goodwill or of inner hate. And in any event, you should train yourselves. Our minds will be unaffected and we will say no evil words. We will remain sympathetic to that person's welfare with a mind of goodwill and with no inner hate. We will keep pervading him with an awareness imbued with goodwill. And beginning with him, we will keep pervading the all-encompassing world with an awareness imbued with goodwill equal to the great earth, abundant, expansive, immeasurable, free from hostility, free from ill will. That's how you should train yourselves. Okay, so he packs a lot in there. And then it goes on, and the Buddha says, well, suppose a man were to come along carrying lac, which is yellow pigment, indigo crimson, saying, I will draw pictures in space. I'll make pictures appear. Now, what do you think? Would he draw pictures in space and make pictures appear? No, Lord. Why is that? Because space is formless and featureless. It's not easy to draw pictures there and to make them appear. The man would reap only a share of weariness and disappointment. And then the Buddha does the teaching refrain again, you know, which is the point of this whole thing. And another one, 
And then he continues, the Buddha continues, suppose a man were to come along carrying a burning grass torch, saying, with this burning grass torch, I will heat up the river Ganges and make it boil. Now, what do you think? Would he, with that burning grass torch, heat up the river Ganges and make it boil? No, Lord. Why is that? because the river Ganges is deep and enormous. It's not easy to heat it up and make it boil with a burning grass torch. The man would reap only a share of weariness and disappointment. And then the teaching refrain again. So, <coughs> peaking curiosity with these metaphors, digging the earth away, drawing in space, and boiling the river Ganges, provides a skillful interconnective entry into what the Buddha wanted to teach. In other words, people would listen with a higher percentage of their brain power. So then they, let's bump this all up a notch by incorporating the supernatural. After all, it is almost Halloween. And part of the talk, the point of this talk, is why I think so many supernatural happenings supernatural, superhuman states and supernormal powers occur in the suttas. They spice up the story by making it more compelling, using lots of interconnectivity and use skillfully they teach. So, some of the stories, okay, so there are these nagas and the nagas are very beneficent serpents and they live in large bodies of water and one of the stories is <coughs> that these um, that after the Buddha reached enlightenment it rained the heavens poured thundered lightning as the Buddha continued to sit for another week and Anaga came out of the water and he had a hood like a whole cobra and covered the Buddha so the Buddha wouldn't get wet. And in Bodhgaya, in India, where um, the Buddha achieved enlightenment, um, <coughs> there's a pond, and there's a concrete Buddha and a concrete Naga. It's really, it's really lovely. Now also, in many of the suttas, the Buddha's omniscient. He can tell what people are thinking as they come up to him to ask for advice. Sometimes he travels with the speed of light, can fly, mountains move. It's pretty great. And I love a lot of the phrases. So one of them I like is just as quickly as a strong man might extend his flexed arm and just as quickly as a strong man might flex his extended arm, the, you know, there are all these realms. So Abrahma flew down from a real high realm and encouraged the Buddha to teach, saying that, you know, there were many people with little dust in their eyes that would understand him. So that that's a great way to kind of bring the story forward just a little more. And another point, I think, of these Sutta stories teach us how to manage the strong... <coughs> inner emotional parts of ourselves. Psychologically, it's like we do have many internal characters running around. And it's certainly understand, 
benefits us to understand them and learn how to work with them. For example, Mara in the suttas is a bad guy who has amazing powers. For instance, he can shapeshift, and he's always trying to do the Buddha in. And don't we ourselves have hatred and jealousy, which sometimes arises to sabotage the better parts of ourselves? Or there's a great story about an angry bull elephant who comes charging. The crowd screams and runs, but the Buddha stands there. And as this crazed bull elephant gets close to the Buddha, he drops to his knees and bows in front of the Buddha. And we know this angry, charging bull elephant part of ourselves who can quiet down when faced with our own best calmness. So, <coughs> at the time of the Buddha, the cosmology had many layers filled with different beings. One of everyone's favorite beings are the devas, which are sort of like angels. And I loved that when Sharon gave a talk a few weeks ago about the devas. People wanted to know more about them. So the story is that the devas were reborn to higher realms because of their virtue and good deeds. So the Buddha used them so skillfully in that sutta that Sharon spoke of a few weeks ago, when the monk, Mahanama, knows the Buddha's going to be traveling and asks him where the monks should rest their minds in his absence. And the Buddha replies <coughs> that once a monk is aroused to practice with conviction, persistence, mindfulness, concentration, and determination, it takes all these things, he could focus on three things, six things. He could focus on recalling the Buddha. He could focus on the Dhamma or the teachings. He could focus on the Sangha. He instructed them to focus on their own virtues, their own generosity, or by recalling the devas. The devas, it's like, what are they doing here? It's like we can understand the first five, but recalling the devas, that doesn't make much sense. But the way the Buddha used them was by saying, whatever conviction the devas developed, after they died, they re-arose on a higher plane. And monks, you can contemplate, I am developing the same conviction in myself. The Buddha continued, whatever virtues the David developed, I am also developing that virtue. Whatever learning they developed in myself, I am developing that generosity, and in myself, discernment the Davis had, and in myself. So really, it's a teaching in self-compassion. Whatever you admire in someone else, how can you own that or see it in yourself? 
If you didn't have it in yourself, you wouldn't see it in someone else. It's resonance. And self-compassion encourages skillfulness. So, <coughs> to bring us to the end, <coughs> let me read you the rest of this sutta. So the Buddha says, at any time when a disciple of the Noble One is recollecting the conviction, virtue, learning, generosity, and discernment found in both himself and the devas, his mind is not overcome with passion, not overcome with aversion, not overcome with delusion. His mind heads straight based on the qualities of the devas. And when the mind is headed straight, the disciple of the Noble One gains a sense of the goal, gains a sense of the Dhamma, gains joy connected with the Dhamma. In one who is joyful, rapture arises. In one who is rapturous, the body grows calm. One whose body is calmed experiences ease. In one at ease, the mind becomes concentrated. <coughs> Let me read that last one apart again. In one who is joyful, rapture arises. In one who is rapturous, the body grows calm. One whose body is calmed experiences ease. In one at ease, the mind becomes concentrated. So let's sit for just a minute or two and I'll ring the bell and if there are questions or discussion or thoughts this prompted in you, So, anything just brought up for anyone? Or yeah. Oh, good. That was magical and and other, and uh, I wish I was inside it right now. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was great. I thought it was like sort of like a movie of this other. Uh, forceful, gentle, inventive world. Um, and this may seem not really related to what I've just said, but one of my questions was, and maybe you told us this already, did Buddha think of himself as immortal? Or is this just not to the point? I don't know. Oh, okay. Never, he never talked about it? I don't it? know. Well, yeah, you know, he w he was immortal. Immortal. No, no. Amortal. No, he was mortal. Mortal. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, there's not a lot of. Um, there's not a lot of talk about transcendence. He was definitely mortal, and he was just a simple monk who traveled and taught. 
He had a lot to say. He a, did have a lot to for say. For a simple, a, a simple monk, monk. But anyways, you portrayed that world and their, uh, their you know, strange and wonderful and magical and uh, able uh, qualities just wonderfully. Thank you. People read the suttas. Do you know them? Do you like them? You ever? Yeah, I was just going to say at this time, a week from the election, I just thought, oh, I love this. I mean, it's so, it's really great to think of peace and, and well, that business about, what did you say about um, somebody that you basically can't stand, you send them love, and I just thought, oh my goodness, uh, that's difficult <coughs> at this time, that's all. So thank you, that gave me some peace in a time that's not so peaceful for me. <laughs> right. Let's end with just a little bit of loving kindness here. If we can just drop back into the practice. In hearing the words of the Buddha, our bodies grow calm and at ease and our minds become more concentrated. It's always skillful to contemplate gratitude. Gratitude that we are alive now, that we have bodies and minds that are as good as they are, that work as well as they do. And let's contemplate and remember each for ourselves what we are grateful for. Let's take a minute and do that. And supported by the understanding and strength of our gratitude, we can reach out to support each other and others throughout our interconnected web of all beings, omitting none. May there be respect, justice, ease, and peace. May violence and hatred end And may we take a minute to send loving kindness to victims and families of this week's violence.
And may our practice be of benefit to all.